Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 18 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 56 in our series. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Mike Brennan from the National Hurricane Center. Mike's title is Branch Chief of the Hurricane Specialist Unit. In other words, he manages the team that puts out the hurricane advisories and outlooks that we're all so familiar with. Mike used to be a hurricane specialist, one of the forecasters. He's one of the most knowledgeable people I know about NHC procedures, hurricane forecasting, communications, and tropical meteorology in general. We'll get his take on this crazy hurricane season here in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida, of course, for the latest information. And Local10.com always has Local 10 News live there, live and free, if you don't, for some reason, have access to TV. You can always, of course, download the Max Tracker Hurricane app and the Local 10 Weather app for current information. All right, Luke, so... Um, uh, we're sort of wrapping this up here. It looks like, we, first of all, we have Epsilon, which is pretty formidable hurricane out there. Hurricane Hunters just found uh, very strong winds. Putting Epsilon. on a show. Yeah, it yeah. Is. Almost knocking on the door of Cat 3. And it rapidly intensified what last night and this morning. That's pretty rare outside the Caribbean this time of year, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's way up there in the Atlantic. Yeah, it's way up there in the Atlantic, and it, and remember, it's got a a non-tropical component to it. As a matter of fact, if you look at the upper-level winds, it's actually embedded in an upper-level low, but mm -hmm. it has this big outflow channel to the north. So it's got getting some what we call baroclinic forcing, in other words, some sort of northern stream, jet stream forcing going along with the tropical forcing from the outflow channel and the warm enough water. So I think that combination is what um, is uh, picking it up. But you're right. It's uh, unusually strong. And uh, down to our, and that's going to go by the Bermuda, well off to the East Bermuda uh, tomorrow, Thursday, uh, into Friday, and then that'll be out of the picture into the North Atlantic. So down to the south of us, ha, um, <laughs> you know, as we're recording this here, it's really a nasty day <laughs> in South Florida here on Wednesday. And it's really, and sometimes when it does this, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what it is that's making it so nasty. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been saying, and I think it is, uh, four things ish, uh, this large low pressure system that we thought might even develop down to the south and creating this inflow of tropical moisture over us. Uh, then there's a strong high to the north that's creating uh, more wind coming to the north. So those winds are kind of converging um, over South Florida, more or less. And you kind of have the tail of, of um, Epsilon, which is really kind of a fronty kind of thing uh, that kind of looks like it's going right into us. And then you have sort of an upper level low. Uh, mm -hmm. A little more cold air aloft, divergence aloft, uh, which is just conducive for rain to develop. Uh, did I miss anything on the list? <laughs> no, no, you got them all. And you know, it takes me back to our last podcast from last week. And you said, hey, we've got this, uh, because at that point we were watching a tropical disturbance to our east. 
And uh, you asked me, you go, do you think that's going to do a whole lot? No, no, it's not. And I didn't. And then we get this today. And that's because it was looking like it would get wrapped up and kind of you know, miss us to the south. And the dominant feature was going to be the one in the Caribbean. That's mm-hmm. the one that you know set Twitter ablaze. And that's mm-hmm. the one that was being monitored by the National Hurricane Center. It was looking like that was the spot to watch. And the other one was inconsequential. Boy, were we wrong. I remember mm-hmm. Sunday. Sunday had really high rain chances. Mm-hmm. And we got a beautiful day out of Sunday as that was kind of the transition to, hey, the one in the Caribbean's looking less and less likely to do much. And there, I say the one, there the was Southern nothing Caribbean, there. In the Southern Caribbean yeah. that, that yeah. was trying yes. to develop, yeah. Yeah, and then it was the system to our east, the disturbance to our east that uh, was on the way. And then that pushed in on Monday, and Monday to today, which is Wednesday, has been a mess. Yeah, and I think that that Monday was pretty good because we were in front of the tropical wave, which is the dry side uh-huh. of the of the tropical wave, right, where you have the the divergence at the lower levels of the atmosphere, and and so and the rainy part of the tropical wave is the backside of it. So once the system got sort of south of us, then we got in where the the air was converging over the southeast coast, and and here we are. <laughs> with mm-hmm. this right so it usually takes these this combination of things it's really impossible to say which one of the factors if any of the factors has made it uh, the worst it is interesting the model miss i'm going to be interested to talk to mike brennan about this in just a moment um the models some of the models really missed because they were as you say generating some hurricane out of the southern caribbean which turned out to be zip uh, that's a, that's kind of a big miss, but it was all in that six to seven day time frame. They're all pretty good up to five yeah. days, right? So the question that that brings up is, uh, does that mean, does that confirm that we shouldn't be forecasting in the tropics beyond five days? Or is that just another, you know, data point? Makes some, yeah. makes some sense to me. You would think so. Yeah, the five day stuff gets so wild out there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, the, the thing is, if you really confine yourself to looking at the next five days on the models, they're generally pretty consistent. It's when mm-hmm. you get past that time that they they go off in very different directions. So uh, makes you kind of think the wrong way about the models, I think. And the Hurricane Center is that's a, a really good thing about they keep it to five days and all those percentages are related to five days. So sometimes there's so much less than it looks like uh, on the models. Well, okay, let's point, bring in it, Dr. Mike Brennan, the manager of the Hurricane Forecaster Unit at the National Hurricane Center. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to our podcast. Yeah. Hey, Brian. Hey, Luke. Good to see you guys. So uh, here we are coming to the end, maybe, of this uh, crazy 2020 hurricane season. So how are you and the forecasting team and everybody at the NHC holding up? Uh, you know, we're, we're still hanging in there. You know, obviously, it's been an extremely busy season. We've written over 500 advisory packages in the Atlantic Basin this year. Uh, that's compared to a, the long-term average is just over 320. So we're not quite to double the level of uh, activity in terms of advisories, but we've got a lot of we've got a lot of storms. We've got a lot of storms in the Pacific. So, so we were certainly uh, maxed out, uh, you know, a few times this year where we had you know four, five, maybe even six advisory packages at once. But uh, you know, things are back to a little more normal level of activity now, and uh, you know we've we've had a couple little breaks here as we've gotten into parts of October where the activity has been a little quieter. So we're we're uh, you know hanging in there, but already working on things like the post analysis and already planning the outreach and everything that goes on before next hurricane season. So we really don't, uh, don't take a break. Yeah. So 
you wrote a lot of advisories for systems that were weak this year. I mean, a disproportionate number of systems were on the weaker side. And I can imagine that these weaker kind of messy systems that putting together an advisory package might even be harder than a stronger system that's not really threatening anybody. Once you get a big threat, that's a whole different thing, I guess. But but it, is that true? Is, is that the way it, it works out in terms of the mental energy you have to put into trying to figure out what one of these weaker systems is going to do? Yeah, the weaker systems are challenging in a diff- very different way. You know, a lot of times we're not very sure that they're going to form. Some systems that are just barely going to get over the line to become a tropical depression or tropical storm, they might be small. They might be these sort of marginal systems that the models don't even have a very good handle on that they're going to form at all. And then when you're dealing with sort of a weak, sloppy system, you have to spend a lot of time figuring out just where the system is. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not always apparent. It doesn't have an eye. Uh, you may not exactly know where the center is. Uh, you may be spending a, a lot of your time just figuring out where it is, how strong it is. When it, For a stronger system, you know exactly where it is. You have a better idea, more confidence in how strong it is. And then the model forecasts for weaker systems are not as good. They're not as well-defined. The steering flow isn't as well-established. So the track forecasts, in some ways, are, are typically a little worse for the weaker systems. And, uh, and it's typically those weaker systems that go on and, and will rapidly strengthen if the conditions are right. So uh, they're complicated in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Luke? Yeah, uh, definitely. We've seen a lot of that this season. I mean, what we've had seven rapidly intensifying storms now that Epsilon's putting on its show, and uh, a lot of weak ones. It's, it's been it's been a hard season to characterize, actually, except that there were a lot of named storms. But it seems like there were a lot of surprises too, with some systems developing or strengthening faster than expected. Laura, a shining example of that. Uh, some stubbornly not developing, and there have been some big misses in the models too. It seems, including the European you know, the vaunted European model. How do you rate this season in general in terms of forecasting challenges, Mike? Well, I think, we, like you said, we've had a little bit of everything. We've had rapid intensifiers. We've had a couple of really sort of long-track classical, like Atlantic hurricanes, you think like Teddy, for example. But we've had a lot of systems developing in the western part of the basin close to land, We've had 10 systems make landfall uh, with an additional uh, impact from Arthur that brushed by the Outer Banks, really sort of 11. Uh, So we've had a lot of systems forming close to land. And like you said, uh, Laura rapidly intensifying. We had another strengthening hurricane with Hannah. Another one with Sally, uh, you know, even Delta, too. So uh, we've had sort of the whole gamut. You know, we've had storms that have been uh, prolific from a storm surge perspective, catastrophic from a wind perspective like Laura. Uh, more sort of lower end wind, but over a broad area like Isaias that caused tremendous wind damage across the mid-Atlantic and into the northeast states. We've had heavy rainfall events, so we've sort of had the whole spectrum. But, but interestingly enough, South Florida is one part of the country that's emerged so far relatively unscathed compared to a lot of other parts of the country this year. So we've been uh, quite lucky down here again this year. We had Isaias again come very another hurricane just off the east coast of Florida that uh, weakened due to shear, stayed just far enough offshore to keep the really significant impacts away from uh, the, the immediate east coast. But uh, we've sort of seen that play out several times now in the past few years. So uh, we've really had the whole gamut of, of potential uh, types of impacts, uh, forecast challenges. You mentioned, uh, you know, the models didn't really have a very good signal that Laura, the strongest hurricane of the season, was even going to really develop in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, just a few days out. Uh, so we've had a lot of model challenges this year in terms of formation and also in terms of, uh, of track. You think about Sally, 
a storm where the steering currents were not very well defined. The forecast shifted around a lot. We had Laura and Marco potentially interacting in the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. So we've sort of, again, had, had just about everything you can think of this year. Yeah, you mentioned that we in South Florida missed, you know, we were missed this year and uh, we had some close calls, but who was not missed was the Gulf. The Gulf of Mexico has just yeah. been clobbered all season long. Uh, I imagine that this is probably one of the greatest Gulf seasons on record. I don't know that, but just looking ahead, uh, is it starting to shut down? Do you have any sense of what the, you know, coming months or, uh, you know, the, the remaining portion of the hurricane season looks like are we starting to to get away from it well i think you know you know now that we're getting more fronts into the gulf of mexico that typically starts to shut off activity there we can still get these systems that form in the caribbean you know there may be another pulse of the mjo coming around as we get into either late october early november so we certainly can't rule out another you know uh, western caribbean system then and those still can affect south florida even though those late in the season systems uh, you know, we've now had something form up in the subtropics with Epsilon uh, that maybe start to shift more towards that mode. And these uh, seasons that have this La Nina, strong La Nina, can tend to have this long tail to them where we can get those formations into November. And if you remember the 2005 season, we had systems all the way into December and even early January, especially up in the subtropics if the SSTs stay warm enough. So, uh, you know, we may not be done yet. I think, you know, for a lot of the higher latitude parts of the basin, you know, maybe the uh, you know, mid-Atlantic and northeast states is less of a risk this time of year. You certainly can't rule out risk to Florida, though, at this point, even uh, even as we get late into the year. Yeah, although it looks like the shear is picking up significantly for, for now, but you never know. I mean, yeah. You can always get a kind of a bubble of, of uh, favorable conditions. Talking about the models, in this just most recent example in the, the Caribbean, if you looked out five days, we were talking. Luke and I were talking about this just a moment ago before you came on. the The models were relatively consistent with something developing in the southern or the western Caribbean, southwestern Caribbean, I guess. Uh, but if you go six or seven days out, I mean, the GFS and some other models insisted that some kind of strong storm or hurricane was going to come out of there and track over Cuba and the Bahamas and maybe Florida. Sometimes, I mean, Twitter was just on fire. Uh, about this. And the euro had a very different solution and closer to right, I guess you'd have to say, but, but as it uh, worked out. So do you think this is like just another uh, thing to add to the evidence that we really shouldn't try and forecast these things after five days? So often it seems like the five-day forecasts in the models are pretty consistent. But then once you get to that six or seven-day period, you see this kind of divergence in this case from a hurricane to nothing you know looking across yeah. the different models what's your take on that yeah it's it's really tough there that's one reason why our genesis forecasts really go out five days you know we we are experimenting with six and seven day forecast and, and they actually look okay from what we've seen so far but there are these sort of added challenges as you go out farther in time you know um especially as you get late into the season, when you have systems that might be interacting more with the mid-latitude flow, that becomes obviously a lot more variable this time of year. You can see that in those runs of the models and how whatever system they were developing occurred 10 different ways and different times, and it was all going to depend on how it interacted with the jet stream. And given the uncertainty and just predicting that sort of large-scale flow out even five to 10 days in advance, the predictability can really can really decline there. However, there are cases when there are sort of these no-brainer, like really high confidence type Genesis forecasts when we know the large scale is favorable, all the models are, are on top of it. But 
But that seemed to be the exception rather than the rule this year. Maybe because, again, we had a lot of sort of weaker short-lived systems that the models didn't latch on to very well. We had some small systems. You remember uh, Nana and I think Omar in the Caribbean, the models really didn't have a great signal for either of those as well. So it's also true that the models are changing every year. The European model was upgraded uh, earlier this year. The GFS is going to go through an upgrade uh, uh, in, the, in the winter that, that we're going to have for a couple of years. So the, the trends and the sort of uh, your, your mind's uh, recollection of the biases or the, or the tendencies of the models don't hold up from year to year. So it's almost like you start off each year with sort of a fresh slate and you have to sort of relearn uh, how the models are going to behave. And again, the character of the season has a has a role in how that uh, plays out, too. Is part of it that that the storms this year, I think, and I haven't actually looked this up, so I'm going by my just perception, that they tended to be on this side of the ocean as opposed to a lot of them being over. It reminds me of 2005, actually, where all the action was over on this side of the ocean. And when they kind of start over here, they seem to be harder the forecast or more kind of weird things happen than when you get out there in the deep tropics and you're just dealing with tropical forcing, which I guess is what you were talking about. Yeah, you know, you have the sort of typical main development region hurricanes. You think like a back to Irma in 2017. Right. I mean, we knew a week ahead of time that Irma, that what became Irma was going to form. It was very, very clear. The models tend to do really well out in that sort of eastern Atlantic, deep tropical part of the basin when the conditions are all just right. When you get over to the western part of the basin where we've had a lot of uh, formation this year, you have lots of land interaction potential. You have, you know, uh, potentially systems forming at a little higher latitude. You get up into the Gulf of Mexico. You can have interaction with fronts. Uh, you can have sort of, uh, you know, again, just a lot more complexity. And the models have typically struggled with formation in the Gulf of Mexico. That's a known problem that, that we've known for years here at NHC. Sort of a closed basin. Maybe you get slightly smaller systems in some areas. But, uh, you know, all those factors can, can play a, a role in making it a little harder to, uh, to, to get the, the formation forecast right. And that's one reason why we do it probabilistically, because, you know, we're never very binary on things to say that something's absolutely not going to happen or is. So we try to provide that probabilistic information to give people a sense of, of you know, the trend. Does it look more likely than it did yesterday or less likely? And, and again, try to narrow down the timing of the formation is also another challenge. Uh, we may know or have a good sense that something's going to form, but it might form faster than we think initially or take a little longer. And so there's the, the temporal aspect of it, too, that then plays a big role in where the eventual storm might go or what its intensity might be, especially if you're dealing with land interaction or how it's going to interact with the steering flow. If you have a stronger system that develops faster, it's going to feel the deep layer steering sooner whether a shallower, weaker system is going to probably move more westward with time for even another day or two. And that can make a huge difference as to where a system ends up ultimately or what kind of environment it encounters in terms of intensity. Yeah, it's not easy stuff, Mike. Uh, you guys, hats off to you. The National Hurricane Center is just a marvel. But does it drive you guys crazy that seemingly responsible meteorologists post long-range models that show inflammatory situations on social media? Well, it's a challenge. It's a messaging challenge. But I mean, we, we can't kid ourselves and pretend that that information isn't out there. We know it is. So we have to do our part to uh, to help message that and work with our partners and, and the government and in the media and be active ourselves on things like social media to, again, try to steer people towards the official forecasts and the official information that comes from us where, you know, not just for Genesis forecast, but for track forecast, you can see you know, when you have a Laura or a big storm, there's model forecasts. Everybody's sort of living and dying on, on the Internet with the latest run of the GFS or ECMWF or the ensembles. 
when in reality, you know, we've shown over time that the NHC forecast is more consistent and generally better than any one individual model. So I think it would help lower everybody's anxiety level if they maybe looked at a little less of the models and a little more of the official forecast. And again, uh, you know, the, the advantage the official forecast has is it can kind of maintain continuity where model solutions can flip-flop around back and forth. You can go from a hurricane to no storm back to a hurricane again, and the same thing can happen with the track. So it's, but, but again, that information's out there. It's in the public domain. Hurricanes aren't the only part of the field to deal with it. I mean, you see winter storm Twitter and the snow, snowfall and severe weather and everything. So it's, it's just a part of the field that, and a part of the reality that we have to deal with now. Absolutely. You know, uh, in an ideal world, everybody would be on the same page and point to the beacon that is you guys. And for me personally, it's a little bit you take one of the big challenges out. I'm not trying to forecast, you know, this hurricane like you guys. I, you, I explain the National Hurricane Center forecast. That's half of the difficulty of the problem that I I'm I'm just going to focus on the communications point. So for me, it's a bit of a uh, you can back away from that um, for my end. So you, you just wish that everybody could come together. I, you know, I related a little bit to covid where especially in the beginning of it, I had you, you're trying to drink so much information. You're hearing things from all over from uh, different points of view. And uh, you really wish that you could consolidate. And that's what the Hurricane Center does. So uh, wouldn't you agree with that, Brian? I would. I absolutely would. I, I don't try and forecast where the storm is going. The whole, you know, my whole effort is to help people understand the National Hurricane Center forecast and the intrinsic uncertainties that come with forecasting in general. And, and I think actually for the hurricane program, we have a great partnership. Almost everybody in the media, almost everybody in the public sector, people making decisions, they're all for the most part, using our forecast. So we have a, a really consolidated message. It's not like that necessarily in other, in other programs and other, for other hazards, but we really do have a good situation and a setup where, you know, not only are you using our forecast, but when there's a threat to South Florida, we're talking to you directly on television. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're honing the message around the same, uh, you know, talking points and trying to get that message across to people. Because if, if we've learned anything in the last few years, it's that people are consuming information and, every way you can imagine from television to their phone to social media to word of mouth to anything so having that consistent message in as many places as possible is really the, the goal these days uh it's, it's more than just the forecast it's the information about what people need to be doing and what they need to be paying attention to and how they need to be getting themselves ready so do you have any idea yet about the models or indeed the uh, national hurricane center official forecast and the errors this year, we've had a perception that the euro has not been the king of the hill in many situations in the past where we were amazed. This recent Caribbean situation is kind of, kind of an exception to that. Laura was a, certainly a situation where we, we were looking at the euro going, what's going on? So is that an accurate perception? And, and has it affected human forecasts that the models have, have seemingly been less consistent than than we felt like they were in the past, or is it just perception? I, I think it's, it varies from storm to storm. I think, you know, we haven't done a comprehensive verification yet for the season, but I, I do remember looking at, you know, at some point earlier in the year, and the, the European, for example, was sort of in the middle of the pack in terms of the track model guidance compared to the other, you know, best mm -hmm. models that we typically use, like the GFS or the UK Met. And that was a little bit in contrast to what we've seen in previous years, where the European was better than everything, and even sometimes better than the consensus. 
Um, that hadn't been the case, at least through part of the Atlantic season this year, although it, it ended up doing a little better with Delta than some of the other models did. So, you know, you can't pick and choose. That's one reason why we sort of focus on that blend of the best model guidance. And that, that generally allows us to make a better forecast. And then also because you're averaging the models together, it's, you're less sensitive to sort of run to run variability from one model to the next. So your forecast is going to be more consistent and not move around as much. You know, we've, uh, you know, you think back to Laura, you know, there were cycles where the model shifted over to the left, more toward the Houston area. Mm -hmm. um, our forecast, you know, was relatively conservative and sort of stayed where we were. Maybe we nudged left a little bit, but we didn't really bite off on that westward motion or westward track. And that was occurring at a very critical time when there were watch warning or even evacuation decisions being made for the metropolitan Houston area. So there was a lot of benefit and value added by the role of the human forecaster in that role, uh, not by just what the forecast said, but maybe what it didn't say mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and what didn't happen and what wasn't asked of people to do to get ready for a storm in an area where maybe they didn't need to, uh, to that extent. So going back to the beginning of the season or looking at the season as a whole, of course, we've got all these you know, record pace and record numbers or almost record numbers here if we uh, get to Zeta are, are tying. Uh, so anyway, going back to the beginning, we had six non-tropical systems become tropical enough to be named tropical storms, one right after the other. The question comes up, has something changed about the criteria for naming or the technology? Obviously, satellites are fairly new or the philosophy, or was it just Mother Nature going on a tear, or was it both? Um, I think there's certainly technology advantages we have now that didn't exist, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I know that, you know, if you go back in the history of the National Hurricane Center, there were times in the 1970s where subtropical cyclones weren't handled at all. They were just sort of left, and, and now we actually write advisories on subtropical systems. Yeah, neuter canes there at one yeah, point. Yeah, right? exactly, that era, yes, exactly, yes. where they pretty much were, were not ignored, but they were just handled with marine products. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had... There, there, are, there are signs that the SSTs are a little warmer off the East Coast, you know, of the U.S. earlier in the season now. So that might be providing a little more, uh, you know, fuel for these systems to go on and become a tropical uh, cyclone that, that maybe in the past wouldn't have. It's hard to tell. But, um, you know, we try to call them as we see them. Um, you know, we're looking at everything from aircraft reconnaissance to satellite imagery to scatterometers. You know, we have a lot more wind data from scatterometers than we used to have. You think about open ocean systems. Before, we were reliant primarily on just the Dvorak technique. And, um, you know, Dvorak technique's great, but it doesn't, it's not perfect. It doesn't always capture the wind field of a storm. You're just looking at a satellite image and trying to infer what the intensity is. And sometimes you get a scatterometer pass, you get these big broad swaths of wind data, and all of a sudden, oh, there's 35 or 40 knots of wind in a system where the satellite classifications wouldn't have supported it. So, well, now you have a tropical storm that without the scatterometer data, you might not have. So there's, that's an example of, of technology that's changed. We have higher resolution satellite imagery. We have uh, you know, sounder, uh, image, you know, sounder data that can show warm cores and systems that we didn't necessarily have in the past. So I think it's a combination of just technology and then just the, the variability from year to year that uh, you know, has, has, has seen a change in, in maybe, you know, like you said, this sort of increased number of non-tropical systems. We've got one now, Epsilon, that's a, a hurricane that, again, had non-tropical origins out over the central Atlantic. Yeah, it's a heck of a system, too. It's really interesting to look at the upper uh, upper level winds. It's kind of caught in a trough, but it has this big mm -hmm. tropical outflow channel looking thing yeah. attached to it. It's uh, really 
different than, than normal. Uh, so talking about uh, Mother Nature, the season has been super busy, obviously, in terms of the number of storms, but they've skewed toward weaker and short-lived. We've had a, a whole lot of them. We've had 10 hurricanes. Uh, wouldn't the average is five or six, depending on how you count it, but the the and the number of so-called hurricane days when a hurricane was active is pretty much average, a little more, little yeah. above, just a little above average, not as much above average as the total number of storms. So even with lots of hurricanes, it just means they didn't last very long on average, right? Can you characterize the atmosphere this year that, uh, you know, what about it made it produce so many storms, uh, even though they've been generally weaker or short-lived and how La Nina might have come into play there? You know, you know is, there a, is there a characterization for... You know what's happened over the Atlantic to create this sort of environment? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's sort of been mixed. You know, the large scale. You know, with with La Nina, you expect that you know less shear over the western part of the basin. We've seen you know warmer SSTs, but on the other hand, in parts of the main development region, and you can remember here even in South Florida, we had lots of Saharan dust that sort of dominated the Atlantic. There was a sort of uh, you know stable air mass over a mm-hmm. lot of parts of the eastern and central Atlantic. Yeah, it extended, seemed like that would never go away. <laughs> right. Know? You know, that's really yeah. typical, like in the July time frame, but this right. year it sort of lingered on even into parts of August. And so yeah. the, it seemed like that the Cape Verde season was really a short window this year. It seemed like it may be, you know, typically it might last five or six weeks. You know, if you think it starts in you know early to mid-August and then it sort of shuts off by the time you get to the end of September. But this year it it almost really didn't get going out there until, you know, late August, early September even. So, right. so again, that explains why you have that sort of delayed formation until these, we had pretty vigorous tropical waves this year, mm-hmm. but uh, they didn't really find an environment to form in until they got in the western part of the basin. So that's going to limit your, your number of hurricane days or how long mm-hmm. live the storms are going to be. Uh, but again, it also puts them in that position where they're forming very close to land and there's almost certainly going to be some land impacts once you have systems forming you know nearer to the west of the western antilles they get in the caribbean the gulf the southwestern atlantic there's too much land in the way to avoid uh, land impacts and again the gulf of mexico seemed to be a a pretty uh, uh, active breeding ground this year not just for formation but for systems that got into the gulf and then took off you think like laura you think delta you think uh, sally there were systems that really you know, just took off right when they got into the Gulf of Mexico. Hannah, for example, if Hannah had had another six or 12 hours out of water, her mage happened to make landfall in Texas. So, you know, some of it is just, you know, where the, when you have a situation where you have a lot of rapid intensification right before landfall, you think Laura is kind of like that worst case scenario. You know, <laughs> nobody really cares that there weren't a lot of hurricane days with Laura. It just mattered what happened right. when it got to where it was going. So, um, again, a, a really interesting year. We had things like Bertha form right near land that made landfall in South Carolina, you know, right within a few hours of formation. We had, yeah. uh, you know, just, you know, we had systems form out in the eastern Atlantic, you know, and, and so we've had the whole gamut, the whole basin sort of seen a lot of activity. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, the season is hard to boil down into sort of one neat package sometimes. We'll have to sort of take a look at it when we get the, the sum total of the activity done and go back and take a look at it from a more holistic manner and can kind of sort of look at sort of the large scale average conditions and how they evolved over, over the season and, and take a look at that. I, I think your point is really good though. And, and, and I don't know why I had forgotten it because it was such a big part of life for so long. That's a hair dust uh, situation and kind of forcing development in the Western part of the basin 
that makes everything shorter lived and also closer to land and probably not as strong as they would have potentially been if those big tropical waves had formed farther east and all of all that. I, I think that from a general characterization standpoint, that's a, that's probably a pretty good one. So because we had so many weaker storms and weaker storms generally are not as well forecast in terms of their track, uh, is that going to affect? Well, you said you haven't done the averaging yet, but it just intuitively it seems like that would affect the the average errors for the year. Do you have any sense of that? Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, again, the sample is going to be pretty big, especially mm-hmm. in the short range. You know, we've had a lot of a lot of you know thirty six, forty eight, seventy two hour forecasts. Maybe not so many as, at day five, but um, you know it. it we have to look and see, you know, there are certainly cases where the models didn't do very well. I mean, Sally's an example, Marco's an example. Again, those weren't necessarily weak systems. They were just caught in very complex steering flow situations. Um, the sort of weaker systems, you can even think of something like in Isaias when it got sort of sheared apart near Florida, it started to take on this sort of very different track than it might have if it had remained coherent. So these, all these systems have a different sort of characterization of their track skill. So we'll have to really go back and look, you know, as we do the post analysis, or even if we have a system late in the season, you think you can think back to 2019, our average track forecast errors were really good up until we had Sebastian. Sebastian we right. made some of the largest track forecast errors we made in 25 or 30 years. Yeah. And that skewed the results for the whole season. I mean, there were real forecasts, right. but it was right. it just shows you how one storm can really affect the sort of average of the year. And, um, you know, that's why we look at it on an average basis for the whole basin, but we also look at it storm by storm as well. Well, the strongest storm this year was Hurricane Laura, of course, right? I mean, it was, I believe the last advisory was 155 miles per hour, so way up in Cat 4 range. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, there was was a time when... Yeah, it was right on the cusp of, yeah, right at the high end of Category 4, so... Yeah, it, it intensified right up to landfall, if I remember correctly. But there was a time that some of the normally reliable computer models, we were talking about the Euro, the European, it showed it making landfall just below the Houston-Galveston area, while others were further east and closer to where it actually made landfall. But you remember, this is Laura, where, you know, we're in the season, but... I don't know that the Euro at that point had started to be, kind of show its cards, that maybe it's not on. This was kind of the storm that did that. Uh, was there a lot of angst and gnashing of teeth at the Hurricane Center when those forecasts were being finalized? A big, strong hurricane possibly coming ashore to the left of the Houston metro area. That'd be such a huge event. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we obviously take every forecast really seriously. But, yeah, you certainly know that that if there's a, a major metropolitan area in play or, or any part of the coastline or island that you really want to get those forecasts right and try to, you know, appropriately convey the risk to those folks. Again, that's why we try not to get too hung up on any one particular model and any one particular trend from one cycle to the other. You know, if that trend had been realized over several model cycles from several different models and the entire model envelope had started to shift, then, you know, we would have made a bigger move to the left with the forecast. But, you know, we can make these sort of small adjustments or even moderate adjustments. We don't have to go all the way over to one particular model solution. And and again, it goes back to not paying exact attention to the official track forecast and sort of understanding that that risk exists out of over a broader area. You know, there were watches in place for parts of the Houston area. Uh, you know, we never went to a hurricane warning, for example, in that part of the area. But, but you know, the, the watches and warnings convey the risk. We have products water cane force winds or life-threatening storm surge and so you know unfortunately we're still in a in an environment where people have to 
make preparation and, and decisions about getting ready for a storm in the face of a lot of uncertainty. And you see that in these sort of major metropolitan areas where you may have multi-day clearance times. You think of the Florida Keys or this part, this part of South Florida as well, where decisions, you go back to Irma, decisions are being made four, five, or even six days in advance of a potential approach of a storm. So, you know, you, we don't want people to pay too much attention to the forecast itself. We do try to maintain that continuity, but we really want to deflect people to sort of the, the, the cone and, and the other products we have that, that sort of convey that uncertainty about where the storm could go. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, you can think about Laura and you think about what transpired in Lake Charles and, you know, the sort of perception of what happened in Lake Charles versus what the forecast was. And, you know, there was certainly the risk for that, you know, tremendous storm surge to go all the way up the Calcasieu Lake into Lake Charles. But, you know, Laura went a little farther east and maybe by 10 or 20 miles, that makes all the difference. And we can't forecast those kind of track shifts even within 12 hours of what might actually happen. So we have to lay out that area where people have to get ready. They have to prepare. They may have to evacuate as if they're going to take the very worst storm surge or wind or the other hazards from the storm. And, and those hazards might end up in a slightly different location than, than where you sit on the ground. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the risk wasn't there and it wasn't real. It's just that the atmosphere, you know, shifted a little bit and it went over here instead. So uh, it's amazing to sort of watch the immediate reaction to sort of, um, uh, I don't know what the, what the right, right word is, but it's almost like we're, we're trying to decide what happened with the storm while the storm's still going on. And we don't even have a complete picture of what's happened on the ground. You know, people expect. By very responsible, generally responsible, thoughtful, knowledgeable people, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like people have have decided that there's going to be an instantaneous analysis of what's happened, you know, right after the eye goes over when we don't have all the data, it takes weeks or months even to know what happened with storm surge and wind and, and, you know, it, it, it takes a careful reanalysis and, and post-analysis to figure out what actually went on in a place. And, and certainly an area that was hit by a major hurricane, you're not going to have the communications or the infrastructure left to really get a complete picture for days or weeks afterwards. So we have to, as a as a community, sort of just calm down and let's wait and see what actually happened before we start uh, throwing arrows at people. I totally agree with that, Mike. Let's zero in on that for just a second. Do you have any ideas of how we could, uh, I don't know, avoid that or improve that situation like we have with Laura? And I, I assume you're talking about the unsurvivable uh, storm surge, that text that was put out, which is true. It was true. If you were in that, you know, it, you could not survive. And I believe that 18 or 19 feet of storm surge was verified. It just wasn't where people necessarily had been living. It just wasn't a populated or a very populated area. Is that a problem with the news and the reporters understanding of what a storm surge forecast is? Or is there a better way that we could communicate what a storm surge forecast means? Were there any lessons that you took from that? Well, I think there's probably lessons on both sides. Um, You know, we certainly try to convey that, you know, this is the reasonable, you know, sort of worst case scenario for storm surge that could happen in this area. And, um, you know, and we try to tell people that this is not what everybody's going to experience. It's not even what you might be most likely to experience, but it's what you could experience. And on the, on the media side, you know, it seems to be sort of whatever happens when, 
wherever the media sort of gathers around a storm, you know, for Laura, it happened to be everybody went to Lake Charles because that was the city that was sort of most in the direct path. And and you could see it even the next morning. It's like, well, the surge ended up happening farther east, but then Lake Charles got the eye wall. So everybody was like, boy, there wasn't a lot of surge, but boy, we sure had a lot more wind than we thought we were going to get. And uh, in, in reality, the area was under a storm surge and a hurricane warning, and all those uh, possibilities were equally likely there as would have happened 20 miles east or west. It's just a matter of, of sort of how the media can kind of portray it or how people perceive. Again, human beings love to know and understand what's happening, like sort of right where their feet are. And I think as physical scientists, we sort of have this um, way we tend to think about things in terms of spatial reasoning. And we sort of understand, you know, 20 or 30 miles this way or that way means something. But to other people, that might not really ring true to them. A lot of people don't know geography very well. They don't even know where they could find themselves on a map. So uh, we can't assume that people sort of understand the way we talk about time and space and risk uh, it, it, the way we would understand it ourselves. So we have to do a better job of, of communicating that. And we've we've tried to do that. We've gotten a lot more social science involved and get our problems and graphics, you know, that for many years were designed just by physical scientists because we thought they looked good and they made sense to us. Uh, and now we're doing that with a, a sort of a more of a general public in mind. And what, uh, how do we convey that information to people who may not, maybe never experienced a hurricane before, even though they live in Louisiana or South Florida? Uh, you can't assume that anybody understands or, or knows in some, uh, you know, sort of uh, innate way what these risks are. You have to communicate it fresh each time because you can't, uh, people may not, may not have that background. Yeah, I was in a, a seminar uh, talking about how people understand directions and the idea that especially young people, people now they would be under 40-ish or something like that, I guess. They never grew up with having a map in the glove compartment of the mm -hmm. car where you had to get up and, you know, north, south, east, west was what you, how you convey directions where now it's turn right, turn left, you know, go straight ahead. You know, it's not, yeah. it's, it's, it's just not north, south, east, west. And, and that's something you, you know, they just never, never grew up with. You mentioned, um, uh, Sally uh, a, a moment ago and I, to me that was an amazing situation because uh, it just felt like such an incredibly frustrating storm. I can't remember which one of your uh, forecasters wrote the discussion but it was you know it was something along the lines as just like in every forecast we're moving it farther to the east now uh, because, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, yeah. because i mean it really looked like it was going to go generally toward new orleans and it ended up going getting almost the center almost to pensacola and pensacola really took the the, the brunt yeah. of it i mean in yep do you remember a, a storm that was kind of so badly forecast by the models and and therefore the human forecasts were just I mean, surprisingly variable, right? I mean, the the general the, the general paradigm that you use of don't change it very much, and you know, and yeah. just didn't really work in in uh, in that in a way. I mean, normally, you know, it does that doesn't always work? Sometimes you have to change the forecast, but but not. I mean, this was really felt like it was off the charts in terms of a crazy storm. Didn't it feel like that to you guys? Yeah, it was. It was a high degree of difficulty for sure. And especially, you know, we think about sort of the typical, really uncertain forecast sort of being like the Joaquin's, like in the longer time range, yeah. like three, four, five days out where it's either going to go this way or this yeah. way. 
But, you know, with Sally, it was even within the sort of one to two day time range where the, the steering flow was weak. You had a storm that was, you know, changing in intensity sort of uh, before our eyes as well. And and you're in a part of the Gulf Coast where, you know, every mile makes a huge amount of difference in what the storm surge is going to be from one place to the next because it's such a vulnerable area. And so you really had this like confluence of really bad factors that came together and that made that forecast so challenging, not just from a forecast perspective, but from a messaging perspective. Like you said, you know, you know, we spent, we felt like a day getting, you know, Southeast Louisiana ready for a potential hurricane landfall. And then we, over the course of the next day or two, that sort of shifted to Alabama. Yeah, just a day or two. You know, <laughs> the Florida panhandle yeah. ready yeah. for what got the worst <laughs> conditions in, in a whole, you know, a different state. So, yeah. um, you know, those we try to remind people that the forecasts are not always going to be great. Um, you know, they're, they're really good a lot of the time, but there are these situations where the forecast is, is highly uncertain. And we try to reflect that. We try to, in, in those types of situations, cast a really wide net with watches and warnings that we'll put up. So you might see those watches and warnings be bigger in a Sally situation than they might be in a Laura, for example. Uh, or, or an Irma, you know, Irma's not a great example because it was a, a different type of storm affecting mm-hmm. Florida in a different way. But you know, uh, it, 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 it comes down to sort of how we message and how we can convey that information. And then in those situations where the models are moving around a lot, you sort of have to be a little more responsive in some situations where you know there's not a lot of confidence in the current forecast. So you do have to follow the models a little more in that situation than you might in a situation where you have a lot of confidence in the forecast and then one model goes off and does something kind of off the wall. It's a little safer to sort of uh, maybe wait a little longer before you might make a change. But a Sally situation, you have to sort of be more responsive when you sort of see that trend. And again, that eastward trend became consistent cycle to cycle to cycle. So you you were pretty sure that it wasn't going to shift back to the left because the trend over many cycles and over a day or two had been right each time. It's just a matter of how far do you go and where the model is going to settle down. And like you said, it just intensified, you know, um, in violation of what the models were were (laughs) indicating as well. And obviously intensity and and track are interrelated to to some degree. And no doubt that had something to do with with why the track forecasts. We're we're not as good because the models didn't have that intense a storm. But yeah, that was that was to me that really stood out as being an exception, uh, exceptionally difficult and challenging. And I know people that were trapped in Pensacola uh, because you know, based on the original forecast, they were going to be okay, and they ended up being okay. They survived, but it was a lot scarier than they than they thought, and if they had known it was going to be that scary early enough, because they couldn't leave by the time they realized it was going to be that scary. It, it is, it's a lesson, I think. I think it's a big lesson. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, when we know from social science that people tend to anchor on information mm-hmm. that they get initially about a storm, and, and they might just sort of assume that it's not going to change, or they don't check back to see if it's changing. So we've tried to emphasize that more in our messaging is that you know, especially at the longer time ranges, you need to keep checking on the forecast as we go on in time because it, it will change and your risk may change where you are. And it's not always just going to be, um, you know, what you initially heard or the risk may be very different from what the storm's doing now. We've, we've talked to people after events and they say, oh, well, I decided to do this or that because the, the storm when I made the decision was only a tropical storm or it wasn't a major hurricane yet. Even if the forecast was for it to go on and strengthen or, or the risk to increase, people are sort of fixated on what's happening now rather than what's in the forecast itself. So, so human decision-making is a very complicated 
you know, very complicated science. And, uh, you know, you goes all the way, you know, people have been looking at this for years. You think about marketing, you think about all sorts of public communication, advertising, hazard communication. They're all trying to get at how people process information, what they key in on, and then how they use that to change their behavior. So uh, it's certainly not a problem that's unique to hurricanes, uh, but, uh, but it's something we're trying to, to do more of. Well, not as frustrating as Sally, the switching to, you know, you're talking about frustrating storms. Uh, but one that Brian and I focused a lot on here in South Florida, of course, was Isaias. Were there any other storms that stood out this year? You know, Isaias, it was, is it going to make landfall in South Florida? Is it going to make landfall maybe a little further north? Is it going to, you know, then it looked like it had missed Georgia and then finally it went up to the Carolinas. So, you know, it was it was frustrating. But were there any others that stood out this year? Uh, that were especially challenging that maybe yielded a particular lesson? You know, I think I think ECES was one of them. Uh, we had a lot of like sort of short-term intensity changes to the system. You remember when it was situated, you know, just east of Florida, it was a rather, you know, potentially potent looking hurricane that then sort of sheared apart. And then yeah, we got uh, nothing. We at least able to, <laughs> yeah, and then we were at least able to anticipate that it was going to re-strengthen and did re regain hurricane status by the time it made landfall in North Carolina. So we get this sort of wild up and down swings in the intensity that that really the guidance and, and we have very little ability to anticipate these sort of changes on the order of just hours. And, um, you know, that's that's another reminder that, you know, the intensity forecast has to have those sort of error bars that are associated with it. And that's one reason why we, you know, account for that uncertainty in you know, the storm surge and wind speed probability products, um, you know. I'm trying to think back to other storms. There have been so many, <laughs> and they've all yeah. had their sort of interesting challenges. You know, we had we had Alpha form as a subtropical cyclone in an area that had really never experienced that before. We had, you know, Teddy uh, undergo a, a potent extratropical transition and, and affect Atlantic Canada. You know, and again, just the I think the thing that I'll remember most of the 2020 season is just how many times uh, you talked about the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf Coast had to get ready time and time and time again for storms and and just sort of the storm fatigue that had to set in in that area. And, and you wonder how that affects people's ability to get ready for that third or fourth potential event as opposed to the first one where, you know, maybe your supplies are all still there, but maybe now you've used up your supplies or you don't have the means to evacuate again. So we you know, we think about these areas that could, you know, we had Laura and, and, and Delta make landfall within 12 miles of one another. So you think yeah. about that that part of Louisiana and and how resilient can a community be in the face of, of one significant event, but then have another one come in on top of it in, a, in an environment where everybody's already stressed due to COVID and everything else that's going on in the world. And so um, I just think of this season as being challenging uh, from a messaging perspective, from a meteorology perspective, from a response perspective, and how COVID complicated everything, extended timelines out, resulted in decisions having to be made earlier about, uh, you know, getting communities ready for storms and how guidance for how people might prepare for a storm was going to change from one thing community about sheltering and evacuation planning. And so everything just got more complicated in 2020, I think, sort of across the board. Yeah, uh, stress levels are definitely uh, higher than even average, and and uh, I think New Orleans was in the cone six times, and never got really any, a direct uh, impact. And you wonder how you know how that just changes the perception of what it means to be in the cone, right, or be, be that close to the potential track for future storms. 
Sure. Yeah, you could say that again, too, about not maybe not as much this year, but previous years in parts of Florida as well. Mm-hmm. We had right. you know very numerous sort of close calls or near misses and how that plays into people's perceptions about the next time they will get hit and they will get hit at some point. It's going to happen. But, uh, you know, are people going to be skeptical or are they going to uh, respond in some sort of different way or are they going to um, – you know, it, it's it's just it's a real challenge. And when you live in vulnerable places that that have to be evacuated for life safety reasons, it's it just complicates um, complicates the whole response situation. And, and especially in major metropolitan areas where those decisions have to be made, you know, days in advance, whether it's uh, activating bus contracts or opening shelters and uh, and all those decisions going on over and over and over again can can really wear people down. Yeah, moving boats and things that have to be done well in advance. Yeah, with more and more of the models available online and people expressing opinions on social media, does that make your work at the Hurricane Center harder? Is there any more pressure that that comes because you just know all that that uh, is out there? Does it affect you at all, or do you just kind of keep your head down and go straight ahead? I think it, we keep our heads down. I think it makes what we say even more important because the, the, there's so much noise there now. And I, I think we've talked about this before. You know, 30 years ago, the forecasts were terrible, but everybody got their information from one place. They right. got it from local television for the most part. So everybody had the same message. Now the forecasts are much better, but everybody potentially has a thousand different messages. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think we've realized that our responsibility is not just there from making the best forecast we can, but communicating the risk and the uncertainty and the hazard information in the sort of as clear and concise way as possible. And that's where things like the key messages have come from and sort of the, you know, we're doing more on social media ourselves with Twitter and Facebook live and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, the weather service, maybe even looking into things like Instagram, you know, we are just, how do you meet people where they are? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old now, you know, I, I still watch television. I feel <laughs> like I'm a relic some days, but you know, you look at, I have younger staff, we have younger people in the office and you can see the generational divide and how people consume and information, not only just in where they get it, but sort of at the pace they move. The information moves around extremely fast now. You know, you think about 20 or 30 years ago, again, I talked to Dan Brown, our warning coordination meteorologist about this. And he says, like, you know, when I first started at the Hurricane Center, if I went home for the, the weekend and I was off, I didn't have any real way to even know what was going on. There was no internet. Mm-hmm. If I turned the TV on, I might hear something, or I turned on the weather radio, I might know where a storm was. And then you're just, you're just, you're, you're sort of surrounded by the information now. You know, it used to be we were making decisions almost sort of in a vacuum 20 or 30 years ago. Nobody saw the model guidance. Nobody saw the aircraft data. Mm-hmm. People couldn't even really see very good satellite imagery. So, you know, now we know that all that data is out there. We're, we're looking at it, but sometimes people are posting things or getting out ahead of what even the decisions that we're making. You know, for example, if you have an aircraft go through and find really fat, uh, higher winds, for example, where we're sitting there trying to decide what it means and how might it change what we're saying in terms of the forecast and the messaging, whereas those numbers are already out there in social media. They may be running on the bottom of somebody's television screen already. So, we have to, you know, keep in mind that, you know, we have that responsibility to get the information out there, but we have to get it right. We have to get it out in sort of a measured way that you know, maintains a sort of calm presence so that, you know, people don't want to see the, the hurricane forecast sort of going off the car, going off the rails because there's some new piece of data. We have to sort of analyze that in a careful way, take our time. You know, we're not dealing with tornado warnings for the most part. We have the luxury of at least taking a few minutes or an hour 
to sit and make sense of the information we have and, and come up with the best analysis or the best forecast. Yeah, right. The, the Saturday before Hurricane Andrew, the morning, when I got up in the morning, the first thing I did is I called the National Hurricane Center because from home right. I had no idea what had happened overnight. There was just no way to know. I'm just I'm just waiting for, for you guys to be on Snapchat and TikTok. Then, then I'll know <laughs> that <laughs> the new generation has taken over. Luke? Yeah, but I can't imagine well, you know, the piece I mean, I should... Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say. I mean, I can I can think back to when we first started to get on Twitter, and there was a <laughs> you know there was a little resistance to some of that, and mm-hmm. um, you know it's just sort of why do we need to be here? And it's well, we've realized now that you need to be where the audience is. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what we think is the best platform for communicating information. If we're sending it out there and nobody's getting it, then you know we need to move in a direction where people are. I think the challenge now is that the number of ways that people consume information is only getting bigger. So how do you account for the fact that there are still people that watch television? There are still people that get information from our webpage. And then now there's Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And there's all this, uh, all these different platforms, and they're only getting bigger in number. So how do you sort of target the limited resources and time that you have to get that information out in the broadest way possible? Well, that's what I was thinking of, Mike, is I can't imagine the day where you could get away from the information. I know that there's pluses to having it at your fingertips all the time, but today you can't. I mean, you're always checking what's happening from the minute you get up and you grab your phone until you go to bed. Uh, you just don't get away from it. So anyway, you touched on this earlier, but revisiting the models and how they're constantly evolving, right? There are new versions of the U.S. model the GFS, uh, the European model got updated as well as other major models. Does that make forecasting harder because you don't know what to expect out of a particular model, say a bias that you're used to, or do you really count on just the consensus models, the ones that average everything out? And, and now we too, we have the icon, we have the Korean model and Japanese and yeah. private models. Will those at some point maybe be included in the forecast somehow? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things is like, again, I feel like we're given a history lesson, but, you know, back in the day, the models only changed maybe every five or six years, you know, then you could develop these sort of characteristic biases. You know, everybody knew that the NGM did this or the ADA did this. You know, you could, you could sort of beat the models that way. Now the models change so frequently that the biases that you might see one year don't trans- translate to the next year. So you don't even really get to develop biases for the most part, unless you can go back and we have the ability you know when the when the gfs is upgraded we do they do go back and do retrospective runs over two or three hurricane seasons so we get a sense of what the errors look like what the biases are and so those can be useful for things like the our hica corrected consensus that weights the models differently in different situations based on their past performance but we don't get that for every model you know the european we don't get that kind of you know retrospective sample to to run on so we just have kind of have to learn as we go um, you know, we do look at things. We've looked at things like the JMA global model. Uh, we try to get things into the ATCF, into our forecast system so we can look at them, but also that we can do verification on them and see if they're, you know, performing up to par with the other guidance we already have, or does it make the consensus better if we add it in or take something out? So we look at all that every year. We try to make the best consensus aids possible, um, you know, of the of the different you know, potential models that can go into them. You know, sometimes there's a, a situation where you a model is making the consensus worse, so you might want to take it out. But generally, we we try to be sort of judicious about making changes to that from year to year because again, you don't know how the how the uh, the, the the trends are going to change. You know, the H wharf model is changing 
next year because the GFS is changing, so the H-warp is going to change, yeah. and how that's going to affect the ship's model and the LGM and the intensity forecast. So there's this sort of it's never-ending downstream implication of, of one particular change, just changing the GFS changes almost every piece of intensity guidance that the Hurricane Center uses because the regional hurricane models, HWARF, HMON, COAMPS, TC, they all run off of the GFS initial conditions. The LGM and ships run off of the GFS field. So just by changing one model, you're changing everything else downstream. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we have to be very careful about those changes and, and provide feedback. And we work really well with the modeling center community in the weather service and, and elsewhere other modeling centers around the world to again provide that feedback because they they want their forecast to be as good as possible and even you think about well the ecmwf why would they care about hurricanes well their member states have uh you know territories and interests in hurricane prone areas so does the uk met office so so everybody's working to try and improve those forecasts in a sort of a global sense and and certainly for track they're continuing to get better in a, in a general long-term sense. There certainly is noise from year to year and variability, but but we're still making significant progress. So, Mike, we need to let you go, but but uh, tell us about the coming attractions from the the Hurricane Center. You know, we've been hearing about work on the cone, about possibly changing it, replacing it, doing something yeah. there. What's going on with that and any other developments? Well, we've, we still have some social science projects that are still ongoing. Some of them got slowed down a little bit by COVID because it wasn't very easy to do surveys and some of the, the, the data collection they needed to do. But we're starting to see some of the results of those now. There'll be more that's coming in next year. So there's going to be sort of a wholesale look at our product suite. We're still experimenting with six and seven-day track and intensity forecasts, seven-day genesis forecasts. So we'll be sort of evaluating those and seeing if those are things that excuse me, that may need to eventually go public and how we might convey that type of information. There's a, a pretty rigorous debate in the community about, you know, our seven-day track and intensity forecast uh -huh. from the Hurricane Center, a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing. Um, there are certainly customers who would love them, but there are other people who would much rather not have to start worrying about a storm even sooner than they do now. So, uh, so we sort of have to sort through all of that. And, uh, you know, and again, we are, you know, again, trying to make improvements in how we communicate and message information. We have some new graphics for storm surge this year that are experimental, and we'll evaluate the feedback for those. And, and we're also working with the local National Weather Service offices to, to you know, sort of improve and, and streamline their local products that go out for hurricanes that are, again, focused on what's going to happen down to that sort of community scale, like the Miami office here in South Florida. So it's really sort of a team effort agency-wide and then all, even with our partners elsewhere to, to sort of get that forecast and keep it improving and, and communicate and get the products in a sort of a clear manner as we can. All right, Mike. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, your work and the work of everybody there at the Hurricane Center. We couldn't do what we do uh, without you guys, and, and it's, uh, it's great to be your partners. We really appreciate yep, it. We, we appreciate the partnership as well. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you, and Luke, and uh, we'll look forward to a hopefully quieter 2021. Exactly. And let's see if we can wrap yeah. this season up now. If you have any control exactly. over that, that would be great. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks. Okay. See you. So, Luke, that question of the seven-day forecast, uh, we've talked about this before. What's, what's your take on it? I think that people like us that have to communicate dread the idea of them putting out hurricane forecasts for seven days. But people that operationally have to deal with it internally and get, get um, you know, wheels turning kind of out of the public view want it. Feels like to me that's where the, the conflict is. Yeah, maybe they could just, you know, offer it to 
emergency managers and keep it out of the public domain if at all possible. Yeah, but you're right. For, you do I don't know how you would, but, you know, it's just not there. You know, from, mm -hmm. from a communication standpoint, from our end, we're not there yet. And it, it could be detrimental. And it just it wouldn't be all that useful on our end. So... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We'll so I think, goes. I think, you know, my take on these long range forecasts in general is, and I wish they didn't do them out to five days actually with a cone and all that is that they would put up a risk area at the coast uh, when there's a, some kind of potential threat. So it's a different thing than the forecast. It's just a heads up, you know, which other countries yeah. do, by the way, they have uh, something like pre watch that, that uh, alerts people when there is some kind of certainty. Thing is, there's not always certainty. A lot of times, you, you know nothing at seven days. <laughs> Sometimes you know nothing at five days. So uh, I don't know. There's there's risk in that. I think. So some people think that the cone, just in general, that its time has has come and gone. But I kind of think that people are used to the cone. And uh, the the real question is how you change it for the variability of the storm. Feels like to me. What's your thoughts? on, uh, you know, on what should happen with the cone. I can't imagine not having the cone. You know, it's something that over time people, they just get conditioned and they, they're, they're expecting that as part of uh, what they want to see when there's a, a hurricane threat. Now, the, the outliers thing that you were talking about, you know, if you've got an Irma and it's really well forecast, you could have a, maybe a narrower cone. If you've got something that's uh, not as well forecast. You could have a wider cone to, you know, encompass. This is the possibility here. It's got a larger range of error, uh, so maybe that kind of change. But I can't imagine it going away. Do That's you? what the Japanese do, by the way. They change the size of the cone based on the uh, certainty or uncertainty in the forecast. The tricky part is knowing the certainty or uncertainty in the forecast. We have some ways to do that, but actually yeah. documenting that and making it feel you know like you really are confident in in what you're putting out i think there's a bit of a question there yeah well i guess you could use the model spread the spaghetti spread something right. like that as, a, as like a rough that. guide but i think that's kind of how people use it anyway i don't think that a majority of the public understands that the cone is steady it's static from storm to storm you know sometimes they see them long and skinny because it's a a, Fast a faster mover. moving yeah. storm and yeah. that doesn't come across visually very well so i don't know i uh, that's the way I see it. I think that I uh, no, I agree with you. I don't think people do realize that it's the the same size at the same time periods uh, all the way out. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, project. But um, Robbie Berg, one of the hurricane specialists, is focusing on this, and and it's going to be really interesting to see what he and that team of people mm. working on it um, come up with. So unless something unexpected happens, this is our last podcast of 2020. Of course, it is 2020, so that increases the odds of something unexpected happening. Uh, but if the tropics behave, we'll uh, wish you a very good off-season. Hurricane season 2021 will be here before you know it, Luke. Uh, Brian, I enjoy these greatly, and I've learned a tremendous amount this season. Hope we're not talking again for another year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Let's knock it off. This is it. This is it, we hope. So wrapping up Hurricane Season 2020 for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well, everybody. Stay safe. And please, wear a mask until we don't have to. But right now, wear a mask. Thank you.